to Drummers Only Radio. Drummers Only is the UK's leading drum shop with store locations in Glasgow and Leeds. Our podcasts are full of interviews, gear reviews, and much more from the unique perspective of a drum shop. The show is hosted by two pasty Scottish dudes who talk real fast. Whoa. Slow down there, Braveheart. So here's Chris, the Glasgow shop manager, and Adam, the social media manager. Be sure to like, subscribe, and let's do this. Hello, Christopher. Hello, Adam. For Adam, for. <laughs> <laughs> that threw me off there. <laughs> right, uh, this is Drummers Only Radio, episode number thirty-five. Yes. Quite potentially, and I don't mean any disrespect to any previous uh, guests, probably the biggest guest we've had on the podcast. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, I, I would say it's, he's a fairly sizable catch. Yes. Um, I'll let you, I'll let you. Oh man, oh, yeah. I feel, I feel honoured. So, ladies and gentlemen, we have, as you can tell by the title of this, we have the one and only Todd Zuckerman on the podcast today. What a guy. Yeah, Todd's uh, been a friend of ours for a few years now, uh, stretching back to around about 2008. We tried to get him in clinic uh, back then. It, it didn't happen, uh, but then we did, as you'll find out after much discussion, uh, get him in clinic uh, for 2014. I couldn't remember the date. I know, that's really awkward. Uh, I, felt, uh, I felt there, I was sitting there like, ooh. Yeah, um, I, I'm not going to lie, I felt a bit flushed and a bit yeah. like... I, do your research, bro. Yeah, to, uh, to be fair, we were both really excited. Yeah, so. and uh, he, he confirmed the date later to be around about uh, early November 2014. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so we talked about a bunch of things. Uh, Before, I mean, obviously, we did talk about a lot of things, but we didn't talk about the, you know, the things that you can easily look up online. Yeah, kind of thing. I, I think we were, both you and I were at pains to try and find questions that might be slightly different, like... I think we all know what drumsticks he plays. They yeah. have his name on them. <laughs> Which ones does he put back there? Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, like, we, we know he plays uh, Sabian and, and we know he plays Pearl because that information is readily available everywhere yes. you look. So we threw him off a little bit. We threw him some questions that he maybe hasn't had before. Hopefully. Um, hopefully hasn't had before. Um, and it was a lot of fun. You know, we spoke about things like you know, not being too precious about the gig you're on. Yeah, um, about being a details-orientated guy, about playing big rooms, about um, baseball what? bats and birthday cakes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so everybody sit back, relax and enjoy. Hey, man. Hi, Chris. How are you? Yes, I'm quite excited. Good. Um, Drummers Only Radio, episode number 35. Yep. And we get to share it with this wonderful man. A friend of ours called Todd Zuckerman. How are you, man? I'm doing very well. How are you guys doing? Great. Great, thank you. It's been a while. Do you know, I was driving over to the shop for this interview and I was so excited. Yeah. I was like, absolutely. I, I think I broke several speed limits. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been what, what, 2010 maybe was the last year, the last time we saw you, clinic. You were over. Is it that long ago? It couldn't be that long. I don't think it's far away. I, wa I, wanted, I want to say I might... Uh, if if I went into my photo library, I could tell you, but I want to say 2014 or 13. Okay, you're probably more correct than I am. That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. but it's been a while, huh? Yes. No. I, well, I I I remember that night for a bunch of reasons. I I mean, I had a great time in Glasgow. You guys were great hosts. That was a fun night. The hotel was one of like the coolest little boutique, tiny, this, this tiny little room with like crazy romantic lights and like red lights in the, in the, in the, the bathroom. Um, I have a feeling you were in Malmaison. I don't think I was there. No. I think 
it was an, it was another like sort of boutique hotel. Okay. But that's that's beside the point. Yeah. But I remember before the clinic, um, getting very concerned and worried about the the travel the next day because we were supposed to uh, the next night I was in uh, Cardiff and there was a storm coming in and our flights connected through Belfast and uh, and and one of the Pearl reps was like if we fly through Belfast we're we're, we're going to be stuck there in the fog. Oh wow. Forever. So we made the decision right before the clinic to, that we were going to drive from Glasgow super early in the morning, like 6 a.m. or something like that. Um, so after we were out and had a couple couple drinks afterwards, yeah. it was like straight to bed for a nap <laughs> and wake up and drove all the way from, from Glasgow to Cardiff to set up and then do another one. Yeah, Estelle goes down and the shop's annals is our favorite clinic ever put on. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. It's co- the general consensus among all the staff is it's been the, the best one we've done. Well, I mean, I, I remember it as a really, really fun night, uh, even with all those uh, things surrounding it. But I, I, I had a great time with you guys. Yeah, someone gave you a whiskey, do you remember? Yes, I do. He handed you a whiskey on the stage. He went to the bar, bought you one and, and brought it up. Oh, that, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Something that pretty much doesn't happen in the USA. unless I, I've done a couple in a bar, but that was like really cool to be. Yeah. Right. So from that night and from DVDs and all the stuff I've, I've kind of watched you do over the years, it's come to uh, light in my head that you're a really details orientated guy. Everything about your playing, everything about even the way you email is super like precise and detailed. Has that always been a thing for you? I guess I don't think of it in those terms because it's just maybe how I'm wired and, and what I do. So it to, to me, it, it feels uh, natural, mm-hmm. but the perception might be detailed. I, I, I try to have some sort of order, you know, in, in my universe, whether it's the way I communicate uh, verbally or, or through the written word or, or through playing. Mm. I'm, I'm fiercely on time and, and prompt to a fault. And, and um, if I drop the ball on something, it's like for a moment, it feels like the world is over, even though I know it, it, it isn't. But I, mm. I, like to, uh, I like to have everything sort of prim and proper. But yeah, yeah, at the same cause... time, I, I'm not crazy about it either at the same time. So I don't know. Well, it's things like we've been watching your modern drummer video when you were talking about the 10 most underrated drum performances. And it's like you pick out little nuggets that people would miss. Like, like you know, they would just maybe be, they're not listening properly or they're, or they're passively listening. When you pick out like these little nuggets, like the Dave Maddox thing where he plays like one kick drum note, it's like, that's just the details, man. You know, it's it's all there. You know, I had so much fun putting that together, and I think that's part of the reason why is because I love sharing the little bits that I think make something great. Like, you know, it'd be very easy to put on uh, Steve Gadd, Asia, Steely Dan. It's like, mm. oh, you like, you like Asia? I'm like, no kidding. You know what I mean? So you're not really sharing something like, check this out. Um, I mean, those things have been studied, uh, you know, at, ad nauseum i mean like hey here's rosanna jeff for carl like of course you know so i wanted to pick things that maybe weren't uh often talked about or noticed and sort of shine a little light on on the things that kind of make me smile the little uh bits it's like it's like it's like cooking when you when you have great food there's some little spice there's some little something that adds so much and without that it's not the same thing Mm. 
Mm. So th- how does that inform when you write parts? Well, if if I have the time to sort of properly compose something, um, I, I try to get in those little details where things will formulate. If I have a couple of weeks where I know I'm going to be recording something, it, it comes into focus more like, ah, that's that's cool. That's nice. Ah, you don't need to do that. So, you know, you know, straighten that out. Um, mm. Layer layer an extra bass drum with a snare drum right here within that lyric line or in between the lyrics and, and it just adds a little extra something. People don't necessarily know what it might be, but all of a sudden you 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 feel something. Yeah. That's what I, I try to do and, and I like there's magic in the subtext. There's magic in, in, in playing little things that add a bit of flavor, just like that spice in, in cooking that isn't a look at me moment. You know, where, okay, the singer stopped and here's a little thing and then back to the story. Uh, if, if there's just something that, that is a little interesting, uh, a, a, a ghost note, the, the way the hi-hats open up or hitting uh, the bell of the ride symbol instead of a crash, just a little ding, a little flavor, whatever it is. Um, th- those are the things that kind of create personality to the track that, that's, that's beyond just keeping time or playing music like, okay, it's the verse, so I'm kind of medium chill, and now I got to play a fill into the chorus. Now we get louder, and then we get back to the verse. You know, that formula works, but then again, that's very formulaic. If you can add some things in there that will give the song a personality or um, what I call hook fills, where, where you play a certain same fill, no matter how simple, going into the chorus and then maybe the second time it's the same thing but there's one extra element that's different and then the third time might be the, the busiest or you play the same fill going back into the verse then that you're stamping a personality on the song to where if you heard that song without those moments it's not the song anymore mm. To, mm. To, to make a, a great point if you went to a wedding and the band was playing in the air tonight and the drummer played anything but you'd go what the hell it's not the song anymore yeah, yeah, right. I mean, I, I just went for the most, the biggest personality fill of all time, but that was just to make an example that if I can come up with something where that is now etched into the composition, I think that's that's a great thing, even if it's... Yeah, it makes it really human, I think. That's what I try to do. How would it then help when you did things like you had to learn all that sticks music way back at the beginning? You know, because you had, I remember when you were talking, watching your DVD, you're talking about picking out parts that, that John, it's John, right? It was, a, was the drummer's name that he had played. And, and you, you know, you had to make sure that they were there. You could have played any fill, but now I'm going to make sure that it's this fill that's on the record, even if the time moves, even if, you know what I mean? Right, right. I mean, the, the interesting thing about John Panazzo's playing is, is uh, I always say this and I never mean any disrespect he was a very active drummer for a guy that had limited technique, mm-hmm. which brought his sort of unique personality to the thing. It's one step towards a Keith Moon type of thing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of playing, but it's a lot of down the toms and da 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 So it was a cool template for me to look at and examine and go, okay, a lot of the stuff was done in the 70s with that sort of 70s mindset and there was no they recorded without a click track so a lot of the songs are, are, are breathing from section to section and that's cool so how do i now bring that into then a 1996 perspective which that was brand new that was the future back then <laughs> what i had to do was try to hip it up some of the ideas kind of bring it to 
1996, but keep retain the flavor of what was on the records that sold 30 million records that I had nothing to do with, you know? Right. Uh, so that was a fun template because there was a lot of playing involved. It wasn't just every song wasn't just playing two mm. and four. They were very active uh, pieces of music with some progressive rock leanings on, on some of the things. So I, I just tried to do what I thought was, was best at the time. And I knew that my job was to hold the other guys in the band so they're comfortable and they can relax and they can have fun and they can do their thing without ever having to look back to me worrying about, am I going to be consistent? Am I going to be play different fills all the time? You know, you, you get into a groove literally where you're just playing, but that that's what my job was. Make them comfortable and happy doing their things to the best of their, their ability. Yes. Yeah, kind of selfless, egoless. I wouldn't say egoless because at the same time I wanted to play well, but I, I knew what my job description was sure. and I knew that, you know, if I was inconsistent on or off stage, there, there could be issues and that mm. I could be replaced at any time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Has that changed any since your, your time progressing with the band? Like, have you been allowed to kind of have a little bit more freedom and put your own as you're, when you're talking about a stamp on things? Like, has that changed at all? as you've moved forward? It's been this sort of gelatinous living organism the whole time <laughs> floating through space. So, so I mean, yes, in some regards, but the, the cool thing is they never, even from the beginning, they never told me what to play or what not to play. All right, okay. They, they gave me freedom to choose what I wanted to do. And there was only one or two times in, in there, like the, the, we had a month of rehearsal before the first tour where I went for something, I tried something and it didn't work. And I kind of got a, for a second, but no one, no one said anything. So I, uh, I feel very fortunate that they gave me that sort of freedom and that I've sort of lived in that um, gelatinous, constantly moving <laughs> organism for, for all this time. So uh, I, I just try to play what's, what's right and what works for everyone. But, you know, make no mistake. I mean, I, I have bosses in the band, you know, if they wanted me to do something or if they've suggested something, um, you know, they might suggest if something felt a little slow the other night and I go listen to the, the, the recording and I check it out against the original or the night before, because that's that's my job. Mm. And there's been a couple times uh, where, the, you know, someone said, you know, fooling yourself felt a little slow. And I went back and I'm like, it's 144. It's exactly where the record was. And I'm like, oh, OK. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I got gotcha. you. I yeah. got gotcha. uh, yeah. <laughs> you. Don't worry about it. And, and normally, I think live, if it feels a little slow, it's probably just right, you know? Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah probably. I mean, it's, it's, it must be different playing gigs the size of the gigs you play, stadiums where the little stuff doesn't get lost, but, you know, it's not like you're playing in a club where, where the energy's going to be different. It has to be right. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, 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 here in the U.S., we play every size venue from the, the biggest places to, and then we'll do a run of of, of theaters, mm. you know, that are, you know, 1,500 or 2,500. And those gigs are great because they're normally longer. We can stretch out and play some of the deeper cuts. And it mm. has that sense mm -hmm. of intimacy and that I know that the sound is generally going to be better than what would be normally at uh, uh, an arena. So. Mm. 
uh, it's nice to have that that variance but at the same time like if i if i'm playing a groove and there's some ghost notes and it's an arena i know that quite possibly depending on where someone's sitting they might not be hearing that at all but the groove would have a different swagger no. if i weren't playing that if i was just popping out two and four that would be a different vibe than the whole thing would, would feel a little little different mm, yeah i guess you have to you still have to play it for you at times right you know uh yeah well I, but i'll also, i'll use that to also help subdivide the time or if i yeah. want to get something just like a, a touch of a swing mm. that is going to affect the, the placement of the, the bass room in the snare drum it might affect how someone else is playing the thing that happens all together collectively again cooking yeah so i was going to ask you obviously 2020 um has not been everyone's year i guess it's, it's probably the polite way to put it um, but this year you also released some of your own music, of course, um, with The Left Flight Home. So what I wanted to ask you was, you know, just kind of off that, you know, when you're so used to playing with sticks and having to kind of, you know, bring someone else's voice to life, at least at the beginning, um, how do you go about writing your own music? Do you start, because I know a lot of drummers start from, obviously, the drums, you know, how, how do you start and then what's your kind of approach to writing? I have to give total credit to J.K. Harrison, who's my collaborator on Last Flight Home. I mean, I I write in a collaborative way. I, you know, I'm not you know sitting on a beach with an acoustic guitar, and <laughs> I, I've I've never had that ability. But I can collaborate with with someone um, or a group of people, and I love doing that. So I, I kind of have to back up. For a moment, because the the way this record came into fruition was was kind of a a magical fluke. Um, you know, I, I worked with with J.K. In, in the old days, and he, he knows that I can sing, but I always felt comfortable singing uh, background and, mm -hmm. and safely hidden behind all the wood <laughs> metal, certainly not standing out, out front and doing it, you know, uh, in any lead vocal capacity. But he believed in me. He said, dude, you could totally do this. And for years, I blew him off with a notion like, oh, gee, that's really cute that you think that I could do this. You know, it's the way that, you know, you, you know, like a little kid wants to be an astronaut or something like, gee, I wish I could get on a rocket. You know, it'd be fun to do my own record like that. But I, I never I never gave it any serious thought. And he kept after me and he, he was very... Uh, tenacious and kind of hitting me and then kind of giving me space and then hitting me again and giving me space and then bringing it up again and um one day you know my my wife taylor's sang in brian milson's band for 12 years and she's a brilliant singer and we were listening to uh uh elbow uh mm -hmm. little fiction's record and and kindling came on and just randomly she said you'd sound great singing this if you ever do something you should cover this and i thought God, that was a very uncharacteristic thing for her to say out of the blue. Um, and right at that same week, uh, JK hit me up again and I was going to be out in Los Angeles for like 10 days or something. And I had a, a, a few nights off and I had a few days off. So I thought, okay, what the hell? Let's get together. At least I'll be hanging out with my pal. We'll have a few drinks. We'll have a few laughs. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens. And working with a guy like him, I, I have to give him credit that his he has demos and nuggets and ideas and charcoal sketches of songs. And it's like walking through a, a, a museum of, of stuff and like, oh, 
dude, this is, this is great. Well, let's take this and mm. let's work, work on this. And uh, I like this bit or, Hey, this would be cool. Let's slow that down a little bit or let's change this lyric. So I really had a head start. It was like walking through, a, uh, uh, it was like walking through an automobile place with different cars and they're just throwing me the keys. It, it was, it was great. And, and by, by the second night we wrote the song last flight home, in a lightning round, 20 minutes back and forth, he was just at the piano. He started playing the beginning, which sort of sounded like a cold play type of thing, for lack of phrase. And they had this melancholy thing. And um, I just started writing lyrics about being stranded in airports and trying to get home, which sounds hilarious now. <laughs> Never thought I'd miss the airport experience. What's an airport? <laughs> that was like, that was part of the thing is, is I would... It always seems like I could fly out to begin a run or fly somewhere fine, but getting home was impossible. Uh, so, and it, long story short, we we wrote the song basically as it is in about twenty minutes, and it was one of those experiences where, gee, isn't songwriting fun? <laughs> if it was always that way, as opposed to the other times we were just sitting there like this for two hours. <laughs> Again, it it was really him that that. He believed in me. He encouraged me. He produced me, and he and he taught me how to sing on the job. And it's something that I never thought I would do. I never thought I'd have the the the, the guts to do. And as soon as I realized, holy smokes, this, this is am I really going to do this? I became just still with fear, just just mm. absolutely terrified. And I thought, yes. This is where I need to be. Do something that scares you this much, rather than putting together some sort of fusion album that has gut, 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 drums. Yeah, right. Like the hardest thing to me in the world is to write a melody and and have a lyrical content that tells a story and then make it believable, believable behind it. So that that became the goal. That was that was the mountain to to climb with this. Um, where I wanted to have every song, every section, every note that I could stand behind and go, yep, I, I stand I stand behind this. Mm-hmm. And have nothing where I would play it for somewhere where I'd go, this part, uh, I hate this, I hate this part. Mm. Mm. That, if, if there's anything that made me squirm or made me feel like that, it, it had to go. Ruthless. Yeah. Did you, sorry. No, what I was going to say was like, just you're totally right because even when I first listened to it, I kind of expected a fusiony type vibe, you know? Surprise! Surprise, I know. And I, but I was pleasantly surprised, though. That's what I was going to say. Like, it's, it was, it, you know, there's like, there's ballads in there. There's kind of your upbeat kind of rock numbers in there still, you know? But like, there's a real kind of personality about the album that's not just like, oh, look at what time signature I can play in or check out this out or check this cool fusion lick or whatever, you know? It's, it's really, it's a really nice listen. And me and Chris were talking about it, like, you can hear influences in there you can hear the beatles in there you can hear you know a lot of what influences you as a musician in that yeah. album you know it's not just like yeah a kind I, of I, I, uh, to, I, to paraphrase like a like a jazz wanky kind ofness or like yeah, a fusion yeah, totally. kind of like you know what i mean I, I watched the video for sacred book of favorite and even the way you play is totally different like you play the song it looks like you've decided on a vibe and that's how you want to play it is that in the ballpark yeah, I mean, with that, with that song, which, which, by the way, the actual title, here, here's a, here's a very big lesson that I learned on, on this. Uh, the actual title of the song is, is Sacred Book of Favorite Days, but when it came back from the mastering, uh, the master, 
had left out the word days no. and on the, the 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 file there's like you know 17 uh numbers and a code and then the title and i never bothered to scroll through so that went to like the digital press and all, everything so uh, um read your files when it comes back to the network uh, <laughs> well, never stop learning um, <laughs> well sacred book of favorite days actually came from uh so I think it was the last time I dabbled in psychedelics, which would have been in the early 90s. And I came up with that phrase, and I, 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 I remembered it, and I thought, uh, that's going to end up in a song somewhere, somehow, sometime. So being that it had that psychedelic um, uh, genesis, so to, so to speak, um, it, you know, we turned the lyrics into more of a romantic notion, but there's still the... the the psychedelic uh, trippiness about it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I was definitely thinking, you know, Ringo or Be Bevan or, or Dave Maddox with XTC, mm. uh, that that type of that type of thing. It's like you just see you switch to play match to things. You know, it's just little things like that. Again, the details for me, it's just like it's all there. Well, that to me, when I'm I'm evoking, I'm trying to evoke that sort of spirit that feels natural to play that way, and the mm. way the fills lope. Yeah it has that sort of feel. If I was thinking Stuart Copeland or something, I'd, I probably would have been traditional. Yeah. Um, but it, it was, it was a, a different vibe on, on that song. And, you know, it's sizzle cymbals and big oceanic long crashes that, you know, blasted over the bar line and that just feels better to me, match grip. Also, uh, I was using a 15-inch snare drum tuned on pretty low with a couple yeah. of moon gels. So, it, you know, it feels like you're hitting a birthday cake. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> for the title is this, gonna, this is going to be. Yep. It's like hitting a birthday cake. Yep, that's exactly what I'm going to call it. <laughs> uh, my friend Bobby McIntyre, uh, a baseball bat in the birthday cake. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> so, I guess a two-part kind of question. Um what song on the record is you, would you consider your favourite one? But separately, what song is has your favourite session story? So if they're the same song, then it's not a very long two part question. But I think the the way we did the record, where I did some a, a couple vocal bits here, and I did all the drums here, but everything else was done in Los Angeles. So it was this sort of commando recording where, thankfully, we do a lot of work out in California and then we'd have a couple days in Los Angeles and then invariably we'd have a day off here or there. And then in between the runs, I would, would have flew out to California for two days and then back and then two day, another two days. So it was, um, it, it, it went very, very quickly in these little bits and pieces. And I, I would always uh, um, send JK and his wife Venmo, uh, <sighs> money and I'd say for supplies and they know that um, they would get food and, and, and JK's wife's an amazing cook and, but they would get um, 
lots of Hendrix gin and Monkey 47 gin and tonic <laughs> water. And that was always the thing. I think the gin bill on, on the record was probably $1,500. <laughs> that was that was always fun to do that. And then we'd work until we couldn't work anymore. And then we'd have a couple of drinks, listen to what we did. And then I'd get in an Uber back to the, the hotel. So the whole thing was a, was a whirlwind in the middle of touring with sticks, in the middle of also doing uh, master classes and, and, and drum clinics, and then coming home and trying to be a husband and a father. So it was just this tumultuous brew of all these different projects. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know if there's a particular story other than after, <laughs> after one of the, doing one particular song, I think it was Ad Lib Everything. It came back the next day and listened to it. And that was the moment where I thought, I'm sorry I've wasted all of our time. This is, this is we cannot release this. And then Jake would be like, okay, now listen, this is good. This is, let's, let's try to get this better. And like a producer, he, he talked me off the cliff where I was ready to throw in the towel and go, no way, sorry, this is, this is not even close to, to being uh, uh, fit for human consumption. <laughs> um, and he's like, oh, listen to this, listen to this, this is really good. But, but let's, let's, let's try to, let's just work on this line. Let's try to do this better. And he would teach me how to sing um, by stressing vowels or he'd, he'd, he'd bring up, think about Sting or Peter Gabriel or whomever at, at this line. And then he'd, he'd teach me how to do it. And then he'd say, okay, now mean it and connect that with all the other lines. Now sing from here, not from here. So he literally taught me how to do it on the job. As any good producer can take something that's, you know, okay, and then make it good and then make it better and hopefully make it as good as possible. So that was really the learning experience for me. And then the drums were actually some of the last thing to go down on the record. And one thing that I learned is, um, Again, I think with Ad Lib Everything is a song in 6-8, and I thought, oh, there's a couple of moments and big breaks between vocal lines, and I love playing in 6-8, and I thought in my mind, this type of thing would be cool there. This would be cool there. And then when I went to record it, it sucked. <laughs> Absolutely, it ruined the vibe of the song from a drummer's perspective, like, oh, there's a little nifty little thing here. But then when I listened to the the, the story of the song, and I'm listening to the you know, to the guy, I'm removing myself, I'm listening to the guy singing the song, telling a story, and then all of a sudden it was that, hey, here's the drums. Mm. <laughs> and then, back to, you were saying? You were saying, go on. So I had to immediately go, I had to stop recognizing this, this does not work. Simplify it, or don't play anything. If you really don't have, have anything to say, don't say anything, or just do a, a simple little thing. And so I did that, and the personality of the song was able to take a step forward as opposed to the musician in me. So, you know, again, here, here I am at, at now 51. And as much as I like to think that I want to play for the song and I, I, I wish to play for the song, that even the, um, you know, the, 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 the drummer in me wants to step around a, 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 a castle of experience and go, hey, here I am. Hello, <laughs> you know. Then you have to learn to go pick, pick, pick your moments even better. And and maybe it's 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 the the fact that I am getting older and I'm hopefully maturing and my choices are getting uh, uh, better. But 
um, that was a big learning experience for me. This is, might sound like a silly question, but will that carry on in your session career? And the reason I think it might sound like a silly question is because you've already got a career that is obviously quite successful. So you've obviously made a lot of the right choices for people along the way. But I feel like that's something that you will probably carry. Well, you know, gather as you go. I, I intended, you know, take every experience and, and learning thing with me as as I go. Um, you know, the, the weird thing about the times we live in now, someone, you know, I'm recording two songs for a guy on Thursday. And he has faith that I'm just going to make the right decisions. And mm. I hopefully have faith that when I send it to him, he goes right on, uh, as opposed to, um, you know, can you change this which which i'll do but that's the magic of playing in the room together or at least doing drums where you have the instant feedback from the guy rather than imagining on a six minute piece of music that every choice i'm going to play over every second is going to be what he envisioned for mm. his music so um you know there, there's many different ways to, to 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 do things but that's that's where we are right now in, in 2020 with the COVID situation um I don't know how to run my stuff. I'm a little embarrassed to admit that, but it's it's true. I don't. If you wanted to pay me a million pounds to record a single snare drum note on my rig, it would be my loss. I've always employed an engineer, so he drives this, and I concentrate on that. And I know even people who know how to work this stuff, how things don't work, and wait, what was going on? I'm not a very patient or wise troubleshooter so i know that this would this would probably be my you know the, the end of me one day but we discovered um audio movers listen to which means my engineer my longtime engineer jr taylor can drive my rig from the safety of his house like like with a screen sharing type of thing we can invite other people in to listen in high resolution audio on, on a private link and then we get on a zoom call and that's how we did uh, what will be the next Sticks record that I recorded here in, in June. We just got on a Zoom call, and then JR was running the stuff at Audio Movers. Tommy and Will Ivankovich were listening in their studios in Nashville, high-res audio, and they might say, can, can you play a crash in the, in the middle of the, the second verse? Like, okay, JR, punch me in. Boom. Wow. That's bonkers. That's amazing. And it was one. 100% like issue free. I couldn't believe it. I kept waiting for when's the thing that's going to happen that's going to, you know, kill the whole day. Um, but it, it, it is, you know, yet to happen at all when, when we've, you know, I've done dozens and dozens of sessions here since then. Wow. So that'll be your future at the minute? Your future present? Sort of. <laughs> wow. Um, you've got one more on that, haven't you? Well, I do. But I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Okay. Because obviously, much like we try and make an effort, I feel like I feel personally embarrassed by your yeah. personal attempt at a snare drum wall behind us in um, comparison to just it's the a, drum sanctuary that Todd a, has provided it's us. It's a with. pretty strange day when a drummer has a better snare wall than a drum shop. <laughs> Well, it's a it's a it's a different one. I mean, there's a lot of one, it's a lot of one of a kinds in here, and a lot of special things. They're all. Uh, Adam's going to put you on the spot, man. You know, everyone's got a story. This might, I think you might regret those words considering the question that's coming up because, um, I mean, you have like a collection of what, over 100 or something? There's about, I think, 116 snare drums in here, 11 kits. 
and a whole stack of cymbals over there. Wow. If you could pick a top five out of those snare drums that you own. Oh, totally impossible. <laughs> Every Everyone has a different vibe and the way it, it, it feels when I, I hit it. it. It's impossible to go. I mean, I, I have ones that are certainly favorites for certain things. You, you want want me to pick you up and take you on a little tour? I mean, if, if, you, yeah. if you want. Yeah, of course. Uh, let's uh, let's start at the beginning here. This would be, and I'm wearing my, my Slingerland t-shirt uh, in uh, an honor for these guys. This was my first drum kit. Wow. So this uh, is a 1969, I want to say, um, rare 18-inch bass drum. I, I never knew until maybe 10, 15 years ago how rare a Slingerland 18-inch bass drum was. Wow. Take you over here to my second kit that was um sorry I, I, the, the studio's a mess i didn't know we'd be doing this <laughs> but i got this uh the sonophonic kit in uh 1980 wow now we're talking here is uh the main there we go pro masterworks kit i just got this snare drum from dave maddox this is a, a 50s slingerland that matches uh my father's kit wow wow what's the shell about that, I I want to say it's like three ply uh, maple mahogany. Right. This is the rig that I'm going to be using for Thursday's session with that snare drum and well, at least on one of the songs and a legacy ride for a little more jazzier vibe. Um, but yeah, over here, boy, what do we have? Uh, Outlaw Bucks County Groove from uh, Portugal, uh, Shaw Girl, say 1937 Leedy Broadway. Oh, wow. uh, 70s Pearl, that's the Stuart Copeland drum. Sort of the Pearl section here. Masterworks, Hybrid Exotic. Uh, lots of great drums. There's a ANF, Red Rock, Australia. Wow. Uh, this guy, John Hammond from the UK, Serenity drums. R ridiculous drums. Oh. Evans from Australia, more Pearls up there, some Sonars. Uh, got the VKs down there. So, so that, that one down there is uh, from the 1973. Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow V8 cylinder head. <laughs> That's from the Victorian decking of the West Pier in Brighton. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I'm my buddy Christoph from a Solid Drum Switzerland. The uh, British Drum Company up there. This is a, a Piet Mondrian uh, Sugar Percussion Alaskan Yellow Cedar. Oh, this is the the buyer section. The 15s are up there. Over here is sort of the, the, the sonar tower, phonic kit. This was a DW kit. It was a gift from Dean Castronovo at the end of a tour we did with Journey. That's the sonar light kit, Rosewood. That was my main kit from 1988 to 95. Sonar signature, signature special edition. Uh, there's a Ludwig section over here. Noble and Cooley. CNC with Craviata shells. Goodman, Zildjian, CNC. Here's the Stanbridge uh, section here. Pete stopped making drums, which is, a, is kind of like a Stradivarius, uh, Stradivarius, like he yeah, stopped right. yeah. violins. Like he, he got a, a university gig and he's doing that. But boy, his drums were absolute magic. Anyway, I, see, I, I feel like a bit of a jerk doing this stuff here. I'm, oh, no, no, man. No, it's all with a drum store, man. Yeah. It's like, this is like, this is like, this is like porn for us. <laughs> yeah, we got, um, Zalkova's down there. Do you know them all? 
So like you know to like if if something is required, you know exactly what drum to pull out and that kind of thing. The uh, the computer's been sitting on uh, my 1970s Rogers power tone. <laughs> so rock and roll, I love it. Yeah, I mean, there's drums in. The, I, I had a look through the, the your website last night. I can't pronounce some of them. Like the shells are like. That to me is the amazing thing is all the different timbers that exist mm. in, in in the world. The little different, you know, the hardnesses, uh, the combinations. That's I always love talking to Pete Stanbridge about it because he he would throw in African blackwood with a different wood that would change a characteristic uh, of the of the shell or you know, a, a bearing edge cut or a little, a little fat or whatever. Each, each thing has a, a different, a, a different vibe. And, and I'll, I'll hear a track and I'll think, Ooh, this would be good for like the Danette Milkwood, which is a great baseball bat and a birthday cake. <laughs> the Danette Titanium was sort of out John Bonham's, a lot of my Ludwig drums. Mm. Um, there's, yeah, there's just certain, certain things where, you know, well, let's 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 try this on on the track. You know, I mean, I've I've, I've been in sessions where I've had, you know, six amazing snare drums, and nothing's working. And then all of a sudden, the engineer says, "Could you try the studio drum?" And I think that no-name thing with like a, a a clear pinstripe on it, like yeah, and it sounds like garbage. <laughs> and then you hit the drum, and in the in, behind the glass, some guy's going. <laughs> Because on that day, on that track with those microphones, and because it was Tuesday, that that drum wins the day. There's there's yeah. no there's no one hundred percent guarantee that anything will always be a call. Yeah, it's fascinating. I've, like I've heard people talk about a shell's just a shell's a shell's a shell. That after a certain point, it doesn't really matter. But I think your collection puts paid to that argument, right? Because they they'll all have a, an awesome character. I think so. Are you? I mean, I, I can see the stance from, you know, I mean, I, I can make one drum work if I worked really hard at it. Mm -hmm. But it's nice to have all these other flavors. I mean, you know, t talk to a guitarist, you're going to play one way with a black Les Paul than you would a, a Telecaster than you would a particular acoustic guitar or a 12 string or here's a Rickenbacker, like the way they feel in your hand will evoke different things. So mm. If you'll allow me for a moment, like I, if I psychoanalyze myself, the, the reason why I have all this stuff was my, my father used to take me to Drums Limited and Frank's Drum Shop, which were the two big drum shops in the 60s and 70s and probably even Frank's before that. But they were a couple doors down from each other and they were like the rival to drum shops. And you'd get in an elevator and you'd open up the, the elevator door and you'd be in the shop. And it was magic because it was floor to ceiling drums. And then there's a bunch of timpani and there's chimes and there's the cymbals. And as a kid, you walk in and that's magic. That's Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory where they walk in for the first time and they see that's absolute magic. And that to me is a temple. So that is what I wanted to create for myself every time I walk in here. And to remind myself, if I ever come in here and, and I'm not inspired, just put a bullet in my head because, <laughs> it's, you know, and if, and if something's not working for me, change out a snare drum, mm. change out the ride symbol, put a different pair of hats on. And all of a sudden I might go down a, a road that I hadn't planned on going down that day, but mm. it will, it will inspire me to play differently 
even from you know, 14 inch snare drum to another 14 inch snare drum, even though they both have you know a, a, a coated ambassador and a and a hazy ambassador snare side, there's inherent different things in the way the sound leaps out of the drum, and I feel it in my my chest or in my hands, and that will inspire certain things. Amazing. That's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for showing us that as well. I forgot a, I forgot a, a critical bit of a Britishness here for you. Oh, wow. Oh, there it is. Wow. This satisfi satisfies my Phil Collins and Keith Mooning all in one shot. <laughs> Hell yeah. That's amazing. That's basically an octopus. That's, uh, that's 6 through 16 concert toms, 1978. Bass drums with the original heads, uh, uh, front and batter, 16, 18 floor. Matching snare, all... Uh, sort of mint condition uh, lock fast hardware with the you know the little mic stand, um, which I I never realized how hip those were. Uh, you know, growing up in America, Premier was a, a bit of a exotic bird, and if you ever saw a Premier kit, you'd normally see like a a four piece kit. Mm. So I was at uh, Bentley's Drum Shop in Fresno, and I've known Dana Bentley since the early '90s, and he has a museum section in his shop that's just sort of invite only and it's it's you walk in you, there's things from all over every decade and he had this stacked up in the corner and i said dana what's the deal with these drums and they looked the, the chrome everything the diamond chrome is amazing and he said yeah someone ordered those the week keith moon died as a tribute and i'm the second owner and you know i just took a pictures of it and i was wow. said i was like finally like dana what what can we do i i think I, I have to have that, that kit. Uh, and then after I got the kit, I, I didn't have six, eight, 10 or 12. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I had dinner with Gavin Harrison when he was in town with the uh, King, King Crimson. And he said, Oh, there's a guy in England and Mike Ellis, if you need anything, he's, mm. he's the, he'll find you, mm -hmm. you know, if you need a, a part for, so I wrote him, I said, Hey, could you track me down? You know, the, the high concert times. And he did. And, uh, <laughs> and then boom, there we are. Wow. I bet it sounds amazing. It sounds incredible. Here's the funny thing. They sound acoustically terrible from sitting behind them. They, it's, it's like you're like you're hitting boxes that are like half timbales, half boxes. <laughs> Put a couple microphones in front of them, like omnidirectional microphones, and you're Phil Collins. It's, it yeah. sounds like it's, it's like Abacab. <laughs> they sound amazing. So I've had a lot of fun um, recording uh, uh, Tom overdubs for, for some things. And as a matter of fact, on um, an invitation from Last Flight Home, that song to me like, had some like madrigal Genesis leanings and I, I sort of stole Phil Collins' groove from uh, uh, Snowbound, which I'd never heard anyone play a groove like that that was just kick and snare with tons of space in there that alludes to a 6-8, but it's not. It's a really cool thing. So I'm like, I'm stealing that. And then I thought, let's <laughs> buy, you know, in, in for a penny and for a pound. I went and I recorded the drum take again with a second snare drum recording the kicks and all the toms. And we took the, the second performance and just lined it up with the first one. So every kick that you hear is the pearl and the premiere. There's two different snares and all the toms are the premiere and the pearls together. Wow. That's phenomenal. That's amazing. Wow. Production ideas, man. We're yeah. hoovering production ideas. I know, totally. Um, you design your masterwork stuff for your tours, right? Like if you've got a new tour, that's a pretty cool privilege, huh? Yes. It's the, the last kit that I did, which is still on the road, uh, it was new in 
1919. That was in the works for a while because I was kind of turning 50 and it was going to be sort of like my 20th anniversary with Pearl. So we, we kind of went hog wild on a kit and I, I used it for half a year and then COVID hit. Yeah, right. I miss, I miss that. It's in a, it's in a semi truck in Chicago. So, so what goes into that process for you? Because we obviously sell custom drums, right? We sell SQ2s, people can buy Masterworks, whatever you want. And it's all so specific. It's so specific to what every person wants. So what's the process? Is it designed, is it based on tour design, stage design, or is it just personal? It's just personal. And then whenever I've gotten a, a road kit from Pearl, it was Masterworks, I would use it for several years. It was mm. never, I want a green kit this year, and I'm next year I'm going to do a red kit. Yeah, right. I, I, would, I would tour probably between five and seven years of uh, a single mm-hmm. drum. Mm-hmm. With, you know, we do like 90 shows a year, so that's, that's a, lot of, a lot of road wear on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with with this kit, I, I fell in love with the the, the Masterworks, uh, the the Maple Gum Studio mm-hmm. uh, Sonic Select. Yeah, I, I was in Nashville for, with some R and D with those guys, and as soon as I played that that combination, they they pulled me into their studio room where they had like five 12 inch toms with this, five 12 inch toms with that, five 12 inch toms with this bearing edge cut. So you could sit in a room and they're all tuned the same with the same heads and kind of hear the, the difference. And to me, the, the, the maple gum was the, the, the winner. And I said, well, can we get in a kit? So, oh yeah, we have the kit. So they brought in the kit <laughs> and I was so blown away that I, I said, I know that we're talking about ordering a, a big sticks rig kit, but I need, I need this, these shells at home in my recording studio. So it, it, it became sort of a, a, a double order. So I, I actually got this one in 2018, but the, the Styx rig didn't debut, I think, until May of, of, of last year. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So, yeah, I mean, with, with, that, with that kit, is the same shells. We, we, we picked a, a particular fade. They did a, a, a TS logo based on the, the Styx logo with the, the Styx T and the, and the S uh, in rose gold leaf on the wow. shell under the lacquer. Uh, all the hardware on the, the drums is rose gold, and they did uh, rose gold um, on the, the inside of, of the shells, like all the washers in the wow. drum. Wow, wow. So that, that, that kind of pops with the, the sort of the, the, the dark cinnamon stain through the, uh, uh, the, the, the clear heads under the light. So it's just one of those things where I, I wanted to look at that and go like, I get to play these drums. You know, they're, they're yeah. amazing sounding and amazing looking one of a kind drums. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that would be the, what the only kit in the world of that. Yeah. That combination. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. They are pretty sexy. Yeah. I mean, like I, we found a video of, I think I wasn't sure if it was yourself who put it up or Peril who put it up, but it was you playing them for the first time. And you can even just see like, the joy in your face when you're playing those drums you know it's like wow these are hell yeah you know like it's amazing no they 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 were they were and still are completely fantastic and it's it's a again it's a rainbow of of sounds that that come out that i can feel in in the hands yeah the, the those brands just really know how to do it they just sound incredible you know I think they ship that with the the die cast hoops, but I really prefer the uh, the the triple flanged. I think they open up the mm. drum 
uh, quite quite a bit more. And I, and I think if you're a fan of like the the sonophonic type of thing, mm-hmm. those are very much in 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 that sort of direction. The way that 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 feels, and you know, you hit a floor tom, you're like, like yeah. you just look, you just killed like uh, like an anthill over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just grills back at you. Yeah, they are very beautiful. Yeah. My, um, it's funny you mentioned, you know, you're talking about high-end pedal drums and the guys in here, I unfortunately wasn't at the first time, or the clinic that you did here in 2014, which, was it 2014? It was, yeah, or something along, around that kind of time. Somewhere around there. Yeah. yeah. It was 1919. Yeah, it was <laughs> the before time, yeah. <laughs> um, but my first experience of seeing you as a player was on a mountaintop with a yellow pedal decade maple i believe with the rain lashing off you and you're still hammering away the drums um can you talk to us about the experience of that day because i believe you were taken up by helicopter is that right yeah yeah, that that would uh i I texted jared the other day that was like that was late november that was like two two years ago um yeah so jared you know he's he's obviously (laughs) a wickedly smart guy and he had the idea of, uh, he said, hey, I, I want to get you in a drum kit in a helicopter on top of the mountain here in British Columbia. And I thought, okay, I've, I've never done that. <laughs> so, sure. Um, so the, 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 the funny thing, if you've, if you've seen like the 18-minute documentary, but when we, when we went to do it, you know, woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning, we had to be there by... 5:30 or something and i had no idea the helicopters were so tiny i envisioned some sort of like military like vietnam helicopter like, all going to be in here with all because we got the camera stuff and these four guys are going and blah 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 um and then when we showed up i thought how are we going to fit into this thing so we had to take off the hoops and the heads of the bass drum to even be able to fit it in the helicopter door. We had all this stuff. I mean, I have pictures, uh, your personal pictures were, were all crammed in and <laughs> down here. And there's like a, some stand that's holding cameras over here and everyone's just two helicopters were just loaded in here. And the day that Jared wanted to do it, I was going to be in, in, the Vancouver area for one more day. And that was supposed to be a sunny, nice day. But the day Jared wanted to do it, it was supposed to be freezing cold and rainy. And he goes, yeah, we got to do it that day. Like, it looks like a nice day. (laughs) Why do we do it then? He goes, no, no, no. He he wanted to show the drummer's plight of the crap that we go through as drummers. He wanted to, to illustrate the things that we do, like, you know, when you're a drummer, you have to buy a certain car. Is it going to fit your gear? Um, where are you going to live? Can you play in your place? Do you have to rent? Uh, you know what I mean? All, all the things that every drummer has to face were the first ones normally at the gig and were the, the, to show up and were the last ones to leave. And then we maybe can't go to the after party because we got a car full of drums and we don't want to get our drums stolen. So we go home and we miss the party. Like there's the things that we go through collectively in the, the brotherhood and sisterhood of being a drummer. And he equated that to <laughs> cold as hell, rainy and wet, alone on a mountain. <laughs> 
so that's what that's what he wanted to do and you know he was uh he was one paying for the helicopter so okay let's go do it so we we did it and it was the most fun i've ever had being completely miserable it was cold <laughs> and wet and rainy and just imagine wearing a pair of jeans and just it's just a, an ice bucket of water yeah yeah couldn't feel my hands we had those little pocket warmers that you the chemical things that you break and have to take a break um you know, my hair is totally wet. I looked like a, a Prince Charles haircut, uh, you know. <laughs> and I, I knew, I'm like, I think we, we did three songs in a drum solo. And I just said, just do them. Just do them, because then we can get the hell out of here. Because it's so cold. It's great. It's gorgeous. But I'm going to die. We're all going to die. Um, they will find us all up here dead. Um, so we did it. We filmed it. It was beautiful. It got in the helicopter. Got back to the hotel. I stood in a hot shower for like a half hour. Just, ah. And it was a great celebration at dinner that night with several martinis. I can't believe that we, we, we did that. And those drums sounded really good being rained on. Um, those decade maples, I mean, for, for inexpensive drums, get rid of the heads that come on, put real Remos uh, uh, on there, tune them up nice. They're, they're good sounding drums. The, the cymbals were a little wet. I would hit a crash and it would go, <laughs> I remember I remember watching that documentary and there's a, a bit in it that just Jared just turns to you and he's, you're just like he's, he's he just goes to you and says do you want these hand warmer things and you're like yeah <laughs> and then there's like a pause and it just take, says they take about half an hour before they start working and you're just like oh <laughs> and it just cuts away it's just like but you're looking at Jared as if like man why are we doing this? It's like that scene in Dumb and Dumber. Yes, yes. Oh, you want my extra pair of gloves? <laughs> Maybe you, you should have those gloves. gloves. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, you did manage to make a decade maple sound amazing on a mountain. Like, thanks. It, it was it was a lot of fun, but yeah, the, the drums they, they they sounded good on their own. It, it feels like it's one of those bucket list things that you didn't know you needed to put on your bucket list. Play drums up a hill. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean that was. That was well, it was more than a hill, man. That was. <laughs> I, I, I forget what the name of the the lake was. I should remember that, but um, it was a long, like you know, it's a finger lake with mountains on the side that had, uh, you know, pine trees growing out of it. Gorgeous, but the rain and wind was coming sideways, and the, the helicopter would start doing this, and I would think, there's nowhere to land if there was a, a problem. Mm. on the side of a hill with trees or the lake what are we what are we going to do <laughs> so yeah when we finally got on that 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 i guess it was a hill but it was probably four or five thousand feet up in the air yeah uh, snow on it sounds like a day in scotland uh, yeah that's be, that's what we live through every day yeah <laughs> well geez have me back there i'd rather play drums there <laughs> play in the car park so um i mean you obviously played with the the great, the wonderful Spinal Tap. You know how could we not talk about that? Um, what was it like? How did how did the the how did it come about that you ended up playing for Spinal Tap whenever they did the live shows? You know how did all that happen? I actually never played a, a show with them, but I did a, a a few TV shows. Ah, that's what it was. My apologies. Because the because the gig was really Greg Bissonette's, uh, but CJ Vanston was a friend of mine who. Uh, was the musical director. And CJ, though he's from Michigan, he was very successful in the, the studio 
scene in Chicago. He left LA and became huge right at the, the time that I started up in the Chicago scene. So we had so many mutual friends and would hear about each other. And when I finally moved to LA, um, you know, he started calling me for things. But the, the gig was already Bissonette's. But Bissonette couldn't do, say the first one was, uh, Jesus 20 years ago, October. Uh, and we did the, the Tonight Show. And we did um, Stonehenge. <laughs> with the 18 inch monument and the little people. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, we rehearsed one song for one day and then like the next day was was the show and it just happened where I was actually home and I was able to do it because I'd fly out the next day to resume the sticks tour. But those guys were, were great. They're hilarious. They can really play. And they damn near killed me when, you know, it's like, you know, five minutes. Okay. Go down and, you know, they're dressed as them, you know, they were just, you know, I was like, you know, Harry and, and, and Chris and Michael, and now they're in their, their get-ups, and it's, you know, it's Nigel, you know. <laughs> so I hop up on the drum riser, and on the snare drum, there's a piece of paper that says, it's printed out, it says, set list, one, Stonehenge. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm keeping this, you know, I had the wherewithal to kind of, Tuck it in, in my stick bag because that's that's in a frame in my in my office. You know, set list, Stonehenge. Then I, I God, it was two thousand nine. I did a couple TV shows in New York with them, and they're they're just they're hilarious. Obviously, a lovely human beings. They 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 care about playing well. You you'd think that it would just be a lark for them. Like, hey, we're very successful. You know, mm -hmm. actors, writers, and performers, and you know, we're gonna just mess around. They like they're really into. They want to play as well as they can. Um, and it was just a great, great experience. Just there, there, there's, there's a couple jokes I, I, I learned that would be uh, not, not for. for... Uh. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you over a drink sometime. Brilliant. I do have a question. Um, and it relates, it relates back to your DVDs or your first DVD. The end of the DVD, you talk about the first sticks tour you ever did. And you finished and you clear out your wardrobe thing and you go home. And you, the next week, you play a wedding gig down the street from the venue where you finished the tour, which tells me you've never really been precious about what the gig is. It's, it's just that actually happened. You can't make that. No, of course. Up. I mean, when when the tour ended, it was at a, a place called the Rosemont Horizon. It's now I think Allstate Arena, but back then it was the Rosemont Horizon, and I saw the Who there, and Genesis, and Journey, and Van Halen, and on and on and on and on and on. That was my dream venue to play. The last show of the tour was the hometown show in Chicago, uh, being recorded and filmed for a, a DVD and a, a CD. So there's a lot of pressure. Uh, a giant guest list, you know, and everything after the show. And when I said goodbye to everybody and then went to the dressing room to clear out my stuff, I, I, I knew the gear was going to be delivered. But as I said goodbye to the guys in the band, I firmly believed I'd never see any of those guys again. There was a reunion tour and maybe, but I thought there's a very good chance I'm never going to see these people or the people in the crew again. So goodbye. Threw my, I had a Toyota Camry back then. I, I threw my stuff in the <laughs> my Toyota. I drove home to my apartment in, in Lincoln Park that I had at the time. 
And it was like being gone for four months for one long gig. Like, you know, the feeling when you get home from a gig and it's mm -hmm. three o'clock in the morning, it felt like that, except I was, I was gone from, you know, May 15th to September 22nd. And I walked in with all my stuff and I just thought, did that just happen? Uh. And it's like, okay, now back to, to real life. The very next weekend, I was playing at a place called Cafe La Cave down on Mannheim Road, uh, like two blocks down from the Rosemont Horizon. And um, I loaded in my stuff through the kitchen, wearing a tuxedo, set up the drums. Uh, I, I smoked cigarettes in those days. I went out and I was having a smoke in the, in the front of the, the building, watching all the cars load in. Metallica was playing that night and you know there's beacon lights in the sky and there's the the guys with the orange uh, uh flashlights and the cones directing traffic in there and i just thought huh wasn't i there uh, one week ago and and here i am so i mean that that really is a life in in, in showbiz you know it's, there's a, but, but i was happy to i was happy to be working in a band that i played with they're all killer musicians so i had a job to do Totally, but I mean, we hear stories of people bagging those gigs all the time. They don't want to play these. They don't want to play this. They don't want to play that. They kind of think they're above it in a way. You know, I don't even know if it's that they're above it. It's just that they have an idea of what being a musician is, and sometimes that doesn't equate in their head. You know, I I don't know. My old man was a working musician, so it was not as normal for me to play those gigs. But not everybody wants to do them. You know, look. Would I rather play Madison Square Garden than someone's wedding? Sure. But if I'm available to play a gig and I'm playing music with good musicians, um, under normal circumstances, I would be happy to be doing that. I mean, you know, providing I'm getting getting paid what even one of those would, would, would be. I'm, I, I, I play music. Um, and especially if you want to get to the point where you're playing big places you can't look at any gig as being underneath you you have you have to get there i mean i mean the the result of you know, where where i ended up was the result of saying yes mm. well, lots of stuff that i didn't necessarily want to do at the time but i did it and maybe i learned something maybe i met someone Maybe someone heard me. Maybe there's forces at work here that I'm not even aware of that, mm. that, that lead you. You know what I mean? Mm. Why, why? I mean, look, at the same time, I won't suffer fools gladly. But to, to, to do some of the gigs that I have done in, in my career, I've gotten something out of them, even if it was like, well, I paid my rent this month. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't want to work as a musician, then work as something else because you are going to have to do some things that might be uh, unsavory. Mm. If if you can train your mind to think, would I rather be tarring a, on a roof, tarring it right now, or would I rather be uh, cold calling someone trying to sell insurance, or would I rather be flipping and making sandwiches in a in a shop, or would you rather be playing music, something that you spent years working on, mm. even if, you th if even if you think the gig's beneath you. I would I would rather play the gig than say, hi, my name is Todd. Can I interest you in a, <laughs> in, in a uh, retirement insurance or whatever, some, some sort of garbage? Um, so that, that's how you have to, to, to look at it. And, and I think if you were to see where most successful musicians end up, they, they did a lot of stuff, even if it wasn't <laughs> playing music, 
you know, maybe they had to have odd jobs, mm. but to, to make money playing music, doing something that, that you like, that's, that's a gift. And, and you have to, you have to know what, what, what you have to think about your decisions. I, I, there's many musicians that I know that were handed some great cards and then they declined those cards waiting for something better to come along. Well, it was a pretty damn good, good card they, they turned down. And in retrospect, they wish they would have said yes to that card. It's the same thing with decisions. And we're, we're handed, you know, certain cards in life that you have to be able to recognize a, a, a good card. I mean, Gavin Harrison's first gig, this is no joke, was dressed as a loaf of bread playing on an open-top bus. It, it's, that's, that story's really well documented. You know, the first pro gig he ever did, I think he was 18, and he was literally driving around the English countryside on an open-top bus dressed as a loaf of bread. Well, I'm going to email him after this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, got a, you got a picture of the loaf of bread gig? <laughs> <laughs> amazing. That's so cool. Yeah, man. Todd, thank you so much for this. This has been absolutely amazing. Um, I've got one last question for you. So I will entertain any question you have. I'm having fun with you guys. Fantastic. Yes, that's what I like to hear. Imagine if the question just didn't like, like if it was like, <laughs> is a Jaffa cake a biscuit or a cake? <laughs> you know, um, Todd, you've been a professional musician for, God, over 30 years now. What's the biggest nugget of advice you wish you'd known when you started your career? Um, the money's in the publishing. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Cool. <laughs> my, my one regret is uh is that i didn't continue piano lessons after my second one when i was six years old um i i wish i would have done that and i you know i could say well it's never too late to start true but had i done it then um i uh i think i would have enjoyed that process of mm -hmm. of of, of being able to play and write. But at that time, the drums came naturally to me and I I loved it and was so passionate about it. That's all I wanted to do. And I looked at this as some sort of chore and distraction and I didn't really understand it and it didn't come naturally to me. And I threw a tirade one night to my parents that I don't want to do this. I want to spend all my time on the drums. And they finally relented and okay. Um, but had my, my dad said the money's in the publishing. No. <laughs> Now, I, I always tell musicians, uh, well, I'm sure I probably said it that night in, in, in Glasgow, there's five things that you can do to um, really help put your career in a, in a positive trajectory. Um, and, uh, you know, who wouldn't want their career to go in a positive trajectory? Always be on time. Your reliability is so much a part of your reputation. Always be on time. Always be prepared. What's the gig? Someone calls you for a first time. You got to learn 20 songs. You learned the 20 songs. So you did your job. You show up prepared. You have the right tools for the job. You don't show up with a jazz gig with a 26 inch bass drum, um, you know, or you don't show up to a Led Zeppelin tribute with an 18 inch bass drum, whatever. You show up with the right tools for the job. Your drums and cymbals are top notch, sound great, ready to roll. Number four, you nail the job. And it's pretty easy to nail the job if you're prepared for the job. And number five, leave everybody happy that you were there. Be a breath of fresh air. Be a good guy. Help the you know the keyboardist with his stuff or uh, the the guitarist carry something out. Maybe they'll help you schlep your stuff out. You know, little things like that go a long way. And then you just maybe work for someone for the first time, and maybe you you played with three other musicians that you'd never met, 
and they think, ah, nice guy. That guy was a, a pleasure. Kid, you know, great drummer, played all the stuff. Uh, you know, he, you know, he was good chatting with him on the break. Uh, he, he nailed everything. And then you might have a new gig there. And then maybe the bass player is going, hey, what are you doing on Tuesday nights? I got a thing. You know what I mean? That's how, if you conduct your, your, your business in that fashion, good things are going to happen. And I always knew that if I handled my business like that, that one day I'd end up in a room with Peter Gabriel or Sting. And both of those things happened. I, I wasn't in their employee, but I was, I was there. <laughs> so that's, that's what I always you know, suggest that musicians should do because there's a lot of grumpy, disgruntled, bitter musicians. Don't be one. Mm. No one wants to be around that. And it doesn't matter how great you are. If you suck as a person, it doesn't really matter <laughs> how great you are. I'd, I'd rather I'd rather spend time with someone who's slightly less talented, but wants to be there and is is a team player and can take uh, a, a direction. And then is a is a great hang that's going to win the day every day. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, are you teaching? Are you are you doing lessons? Yes, I haven't really blown the trumpets about that. I I, I think I think maybe I will for for twenty twenty one. But mm -hmm. you know, people you know contact me all the time, and I I do teach over Zoom. But it's it's normally like whenever they want it's it's not like hey every wednesday at three type of thing mm. um so it, it's 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 very much on like a a, a consultation uh type of thing where we'll have a lesson and you know I'll, I'll try to help spur someone in a direction give give them some ideas mm -hmm. and if they want another lesson down the road they'll uh, they'll hit me up so if someone wanted to find you where could they find you i've been right here since march 13th <laughs> <laughs> My website, uh, toddsuckerman.com uh, or on Facebook or Instagram. Adjust your name, nothing. I nothing. think so. Okay. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know what, I don't know what I'm called on, the, <laughs> on social media. I don't know. Beautiful. Well, man, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. It's been a great hang. Thanks so much for taking the time out. Appreciate right. it. Thank you so much, Todd. Thank, thank, you. thank you. And, man, I look forward to the day when the storm is behind us. Uh, I look forward to brighter days and I look forward to coming over to the UK, uh, maybe doing a clinic and a masterclass with you guys. Absolutely. Anytime. And then having a whole bunch of drinks where I don't have to wake up at six o'clock in the morning the next day. Yes. Do you know what? We've got an advantage now because in the new Glasgow shop, we have a brewery across the road. We do. All right. Is there a hotel on the same road? <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Well, man, you take care, you stay safe um, and all the best and we'll hope to catch you soon. All right. Stay safe. Cheers.